Yesterday was Armistice Day, uh, to remember the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, the moment when hostilities ceased on the Western Front in 1918. In the UK tonight, as we speak, um, Remembrance Day, as we discussed earlier in the show, has seen um, pro-Palestinian marches as well as remembrance of past wars. Christchurch historian Margaret Lovell Smith's latest book is out. It's called I Don't Believe in Murder, Standing Up for Peace in World War I Canterbury. Margaret was a principal writer for the Voices Against War website when the World War I centenary was being observed, which led to the writing of this. She's also written in previous books about the singing teacher, Dame Sister Mary Leo, and a history of the Huranui district, among other titles of hers. Morena, Margaret. Morena, Jim. A young man called Harry Cook said, I don't believe in murder in 1911. This was three years before World War One. Why did he say it, please, Margaret? It was because compulsory military training had been introduced with the Defence Act of 1909, and he was the first of the Christchurch young men who refused to train and, and then refused to pay fines and was then um, sentenced to 21 days in prison. So um, I don't believe in murder was a statement he made in court. I'll get into more detail, but how big was opposition to war before the war itself began? It, it had The introduction of compulsory military training had um, prompted quite a strong anti-militarist movement to develop in Christchurch. Three organisations began, um, the National Peace Council, the Anti-Militarist League and the Passive Resistors Union. And they were supported by um, people from the labour movement, from women's organisations and from some Christians who played a leading part in the peace movement. Many of us have a passing acquaintance, I think, with anti-war feeling from the time, but only a passing one after you read your book. We've heard about Archibald Baxter, the poet James K. Baxter's father, uh, maybe our most famous conscientious objector. But at the same time, Margaret, we've forever been told that the young men who signed up to go thought the war would be over by Christmas and they looked forward to an exciting adventure in the foreign countries they would otherwise never be able to visit. And we've possibly always suspected this to be a bit of a generalisation, but it cemented the idea that there was an ignorance of reality. In fact, there very probably was not among many people, yeah? Yes, well, this was one of the surprises for me, really, uh, doing the research, just the level of dissent, which was not necessarily openly expressed. There were people who were really well informed and already active, actively promoting peace. Only a small proportion of men, you say, actually rushed to enlist when war did break out, too. Yes, well, yes. And this isn't my own research. I mean, another thing I found researching the topic was that a lot of historians had already done a huge amount of research, a lot of it in um, an academic setting. So I had a lot of research to draw on. Anthony Wilding, our Wimbledon tennis champion who died at Ypres, is quoted in your book as saying it was braver to resist going to war than it was going to fight uh, we can only imagine, I suppose, the odium that accrued when you said, I won't go. Yes, yes. It, it was pretty strong. Um, it, it was a very unpopular thing to do, to say that you wouldn't fight. 
but in Christchurch at least there was uh, enough of a peace movement for the people to be supported. I, I think pretty much everyone I researched had the support of a family network or an organisation and so they weren't completely alone. They knew they had friends. Yes, but Peter Scott Ramsey, one of the men who wouldn't go, because you talk about a few of them, he went into mm. hiding in rugged country near Queenstown. And an unknown number of people did go into hiding, and a lot of um, young men left the country or just hid. Yes, Gerald O'Connor was another one, a South Canterbury farmer. His escape at night to hide in the West Coast bush makes dramatic reading New Zealand had its New Zealand seems to have had its own underground railway that smuggled maybe hundreds of men across to the coast into the bush or out of the country. Yes, and yet I know very little about it, even after um, all the research I've done, uh, um, because of course they didn't publicise what they were doing and it was all secret. There were though perhaps at the upper end six and a half thousand men at the upper end of the guesstimates, who evaded the war in one way or another. Some of them left the country, as I said. Others others seemed to try to become non-persons and unfindable. Yes, yes, yes. And, and going back to Peter Ramsey, um, he was eventually caught, and um, and yet he didn't. He doesn't appear in any records as serving a prison sentence as an objector. Um, and... I presume that he actually um, had some kind of health breakdown because they do seem to have not pursued people into prison if they were obviously unwell. Yeah, well, imagine the pressure. I Don't Believe in Murder is the book, and Christchurch historian Margaret Lovell-Smith's talking to us. The peace movements here and abroad uh, didn't suddenly begin when war looked likely. They'd, They'd been going strong... For nearly half a century beforehand, I didn't realise that Tsar Nicholas II in Russia had tried to set up an international conference on peace and disarmament, Margaret. No, well, that's one of the surprises to me too, just the degree to which uh, people in the 19th century were very aware of war. Of course, um, you know, there were lots of wars going on and um, they saw it as just unspeakably cruel and unjust and costly and uh, they they were talking about the need to have other ways of settling international disputes and arbitration was the one that they talked about mostly and so all that was really happening much earlier than I think a lot of us realise and it was something that the women in Christchurch in particular were very aware of Why Christchurch? I mean, was socialism stronger in Canterbury then? Were trade unions stronger? Were the Christian churches more militant? I I don't think they were because World War I was thought to be a just war in parts of um, Christianity, wasn't it? Even though it's harder to see now just what was just about it. Yes, the the mainline churches certainly saw it as a just war, but... There were a few individual Christians who played significant roles, uh, in particular Charles Mackey, who was the Secretary of the National Peace Council. But the other groups that were really uh, knowledgeable and strong on the issue were the uh, women's groups and the socialist groups, um, and slightly to a lesser degree the trade unions. But in Christchurch there were three women's groups, and each one of those groups... um, 
were aware of the need to end war and and set up other ways of settling disputes. And, I mean, the WCTU had a Department of Peace and Arbitration right from the time it began. I'll I'll get to the women. But the Battle of Coral Hall is worth a mention. Uh, The Battle of Coral Hall took place when young Harry was serving his jail time in Timaru, didn't it? Yes, that's right. Yes, and I mean, that was interesting because it, it showed up the kind of class divisions in Christchurch. The um, the meeting had been organised by the Anti-Militarist League and the National Peace Council, but they had become aware that college students, that's the uh, university of the day, were very pro-militarism and were planning to disrupt the meeting. And even previous meetings had also been disrupted. But this particular meeting, uh, the organisers tried to keep the, the, the group led by the college out. Um, and so it ended up that the, the ones who were trying to disrupt the meeting were outside the hall and, and threw rocks through windows and even managed to get hold of some big lump of wood and use it as a battering ram to break down the door. So it really was quite a confrontation. It was. Feelings were running very high. I found it interesting, Margaret, that some of these men uh, weren't complete pacifists. Harry's dad, Fred, said he would he would fight to defend New Zealand, but so many couldn't see the sense of fighting to sort out squabbles between countries in Europe. Presumably, this is the question really, presumably because there was no great th- threat like Nazism, there was no race-based ideology seeking world domination, that sort of thing. Yes, well, I, I found that comment by Fred Cook interesting, um, especially as another in another context he described himself as a pacifist. Um, but I think there certainly were people who were anti-conscription, uh, but not necessarily pacifist. You know, some of them believed it would have been okay if only volunteers had been used. Yeah. But it was the introduction of conscription that um, upset a lot of people. So you talk a lot about the leading women in Canterbury in opposition to the war, Sarah Page and Ada Wells uh, from the suffrage movement, the Canterbury Women's Institute, strong feminist platform. Ada Wells speaking at the 1901 meeting of the National Council of Women in Whanganui. There are some great old photos in your book. Uh, Cartoons, too. There's a woman, Zelandia, the spirit of New Zealand, a sword in her hand on the docks with a ship behind her, and there are deserters on that ship trying to flee New Zealand, and she is stopping Premier Massey as he tries to rush in with a big club in his hand to beat the deserters with, and she says, let the chicken hearts go, we're far better without them. So it's interesting, here we have the scorn of women towards faint-hearted men, and that must have been a powerful countervailing force to the peace movements that you write about. Yes, yes. I think um, some historians have noticed that um, it was often the women who were the strongest critics of of the shirkers, as they called them. The women were brave, and I also couldn't help thinking about the men who were thought to be cowards, but were probably, as Anthony Wilding said, in some cases, even braver than the soldiers because of the odium and, and their lives after that war if people found out what they had done, it must have been a terrible time for families and for people. Yes, I I think it was very difficult. 
Um, and as I say in the final chapter, there were some men who initially at least, um, you know, seemed to seek out places or occupations where they were a bit in hiding, really. You know, they wanted to get away from that stigma. Um, there were other men who, who lost their jobs as a result of their stand and, and had to um, find other ways of making a living. Um, some of them were... Um, listed on the defaulters list, which meant that they lost their civil rights for 10 years and couldn't work for any government department or uh, be teachers or anything like that and also weren't able to vote. So uh, some of the punishment really carried on long after the war. It did. Mm. At the same time, you do write about the growing peace movements between those wars and and I know there was reluctance, you know, to fight World War I on the part of nearly all the parties, they didn't think it would escalate to the extent it did. And there was reluctance, especially in America, to fight World War Two. And yet the wars were fought and they keep being fought. That's the thing. It, your book is a tribute to the peace movement, but also a kind of chronicling of the fact that in the end it couldn't prevent this. Yes, yes. Yes, and the, the people involved at the time, you know, they did feel a great deal of sadness and failure. Um, but I, I kind of finish with a quote they realised they were sowing seeds they weren't reaping the, the harvest as it were you know, they were trying to get a peaceful world but they could see that it wasn't going to happen in their lifetime Very good, well congratulations on the book and a timely release actually Yes, yes you're referring to Amistice Day Yeah Thank you for the time you've given us and um, all the best with the book, Margaret. Thank you, Jim.